Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Tired of your business's healthcare costs unpredictably increasing every year? Healthcare costs are typically a business's second or third line item expense. And if you're like most employers, it's an expense that's growing faster than your revenue. Luckily for employers, Novetta Health has the solution. Novetta Health is a full-service healthcare consulting firm with proven strategies to lower your healthcare costs by up to 30% or more. They operate on a fee-for-service model and never mark up any of their medical or pharmaceutical claims. None of your employees have to leave their doctor or pharmacist either. Their health captive and pharmacy benefit manager are the most cost-effective and transparent solutions in the whole country. What they do is not magic, it's just honest. So if you're tired of overspending on health insurance and want to learn more, visit outcomesrocket.health save for a free spend analysis to see how you too could save by switching to Novetta Health. That's outcomesrocket.health save for your free spend analysis. Outcomesrocket.health save. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Robert Pearl. He is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group and former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. In these roles, he led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and East Coasts. Recently named one of modern healthcare's 50 modern most influential physician leaders, Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. He serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on information technology and healthcare policy. He's the author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and offers that it's a non-for-profit bestseller. All the proceeds of that go to Doctors Without Borders. A regular contributor to Forbes, among other things that he does, such as Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I want to open up the microphone to him to fill in any of the gaps of the introduction. It's a true privilege to have you on, uh, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Saul. It's my pleasure to be here. As you point out, the book Mistreated, While We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, or Usually Wrong, was a Washington Post bestseller with the profits going to Doctors Without Borders. And the Forbes blog just passed its 5 millionth reader. I think we are well on the way to changing American healthcare for the better, for being able to provide higher quality in more convenient ways at lower cost to patients if we're all willing to embrace the changes that can be. That is highly impactful, Robert, and really, really appreciate all the, all the work you've done to get rid of the myths and, and really tackle some of the toughest subjects in, in, in our space. Why did you decide to get into healthcare to begin with? I've always wanted to improve the health of people. Uh, growing up, my father was a dentist, my uncle was a surgeon, and I was always in that realm. And I've really had three careers. I had a career first as a surgeon, fixing children with birth defects, cleft mm-hmm. lips and cleft palates. Then I had the opportunity to be the CEO in Kaiser Permanente and take care of 5 million patients, not as in deep as I used to be as the personal physician, an operating physician for patients and for children, but at another level. And since then, since I, after 18 years of being CEO and publishing the book and speaking, my hope is to change the health care of 300 million Americans. 
because I think the current system is broken. Mm-hmm. We spend more than any other country. What we know is that our life expectancy is at the last of 11 most industrialized nations. 200,000 patients die every year from medical error. Another 100,000 could live if they had all the prevention that they needed. If you know the 100,000 avoiding complications from chronic disease, we have tremendous opportunities in this country, Saul. And my hope, and why I went to medicine in the first place, is to help to improve the health of all. Love it. It is such a, such a great vision. And um, I think of that quote, without a vision, people perish. And, you know, you've done some great things and you think, man, you know, here's Robert, you know, Dr. Pearl, he's done so many great things as a surgeon, as a CEO of Kaiser. You think, man, this guy's going to hang his hat. He did a great job. But now you, you've come up with an even more just ambitious goal of, hey, how can I do well for the 300 million Americans, the people listening to this podcast? for their health care. So I'd love to hear what's on your mind as a hot topic that needs to be on health leaders' agendas today and, and how they could best approach these topics that, that you're thinking about to make it better. One area is medical errors. You know, I begin mistreated with the story of my dad. He was a remarkable individual. He was the son of two immigrant parents, worked his way through college, dental school. World War II breaks out. He volunteers the 101st Airborne. He could have stayed behind American lines, but instead he wants to advance the fight. And mm-hmm. he and his troop parachute on D-Day. They're captured by the Germans. He leads a daring escape through the woods at night, brings everyone back safely, what Tom Brokaw would call the greatest generation. And one day he became tired, something he had never experienced before. He used to sleep four to five hours a night and be basically able to go day and night, seven days a week. And now he's tired. His doctors diagnose him having a hemolytic anemia and take out his spleen. Now, every physician listening, every nurse listening, everyone listening to this broadcast today understands that after your spleen's taken out, you need, you're susceptible to infection from a particular bacterium called pneumococcus. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows that there's a very effective vaccine. But my dad lived half the year in New York and half the year in Florida. And his physicians in New York didn't know that the ones in Florida had not given the vaccine. The ones in Florida assumed New York had done it. Primary care, though, especially care, especially care, though, primary care. And Andy never has it done. Comes out mm-hmm. to visit my brother and me, brother's chairman of anesthesia at Stanford. That's dinner at my house, goes to my brother's house. Brother wakes up the next morning to go to the hospital for rounds at 5 a.m. There's my dad on the floor, unresponsive. Oh, Spends four days in the hospital in the ICU, unresponsive, another two weeks in the hospital. He doesn't die during that admission, but he does die subsequently from its complications and, of course, the diagnosis, pneumococcal septicemia. One of 200,000 people that year and saw, more importantly, every year, including last year, to die in the United States from preventable medical error. You know, what we know is that one in three times, physicians, when they go from one patient room to another in the hospital, don't wash their hands. And as a result, what we know is that hospital-acquired infections, third leading cause of death for patients hospitalized, we can do better. We just somehow accept medical errors as part of the process of delivering care rather than seeing them as something that we should be able to eliminate at least 90% or more of the time. Wow. Uh, Really, really uh, appreciate you sharing that story, Robert, and definitely a thing that should not be affecting anybody. And I love that you're taking the stance. It isn't just part of the process. It's something that needs to be eliminated. Give us an example of how you think this can happen and then maybe some stories of things that you've done to affect change in other areas. So 
If you ask yourself, why is it that we tell ourselves in the United States the healthcare is the best, that being in hospital is safe, and the data says that neither is true, that became the source, the first question that drove me to research and write the book, Mistreated. And what I found is that context shapes perception and changes behavior. Let me give you an example. You may remember from college, the Stanford prison experiment. Zimbardo takes regular students. In fact, he tests them to make sure they're psychologically fine. Half of them get these aviator sunglasses. They become the jailers. Half of them get the khakis, get the uh, OR greens with numbers. They become the jailies. Within 48 hours, they see, and I want to say that word, see each other differently. The jailers see the jailies as dangerous. The jailies see the jailers sadistic. Within six days, the whole experiment ends. Now, remember, everyone knows that the other people are just students. But the context of being in this jail environment changes that perception, changes the behavior. And it's why I believe very strongly that when you change the structure, I talk about it as the four pillars. Mm -hmm. You make care that's integrated. So doctors and doctors and nurses all work together as one. When you pay people on value, not on volume, when you give them the technology to provide the leadership, now things start to change. A great example in Kaiser Permanente when I was the CEO is that we led the nation in preventive care. Across the rest of the country, as an example, hypertension was controlled 55% of the time. We were at 90%. Screening for colon cancer, and I don't mean colonoscopy, that's one way to do it if you have a previous polyp or a family history, but a fit test, five minutes in the safety of your bathroom, without a bowel prep, without any complications, without any risk, once a year for five minutes has the same outcome. And yet across the country, only 65% of the time is it done. We were over 90%. The difference is tens of thousands of lives lost every year unnecessarily. One of the things that I loved was a program that actually I stumbled upon. I didn't invent it, but I can tell you I definitely spread it. I saw in one medical center, I walked this medical center and there is a conference room, typical conference room in most hospitals. And standing at the front is the chief of ophthalmology. And I look around and there's all the doctors and their greens and nurses in their greens and other people sitting there in their white coats. And there's this woman sitting there all dressed up with flowers, man sitting next to her, two little kids next to him. And she walks to the stage and the chief of, of ophthalmology says, Sally saved a life. How did Sally save a life? She looked inside the comprehensive electronic health record, noticed that a woman had not gotten the mammogram she needed and made sure she had it done. And of course the mammogram found a cancer. Now imagine how that changes perception of everyone in the room. Rather than doing what we do at hospitals today, where we give everyone data and tests, we can all score 100 on knowing that C. difficile is the most common bacterium and is carried on the hands, you should wash your hands. We know all those things. Right. It's changing the context. Bring someone in the room whose spouse died from a hospital-acquired infection because someone didn't wash their hands, and now you start to achieve change those are the kinds of experiences that I believe leaders have to do to help everyone see what is possible, see what is happening today, and make a difference. Love it. This is a, a fantastic point that you're making here, Robert. I mean, the creation of context, you know, a lot of the leaders listening today are probably grappling with their own issues, you know, the issues within their own hospitals, within their own companies. And this idea of of changing the context, you know, the different examples you've provided, building experiences. I mean, these are some valuable tips that you've provided. I'd love to hear from you 
a time when maybe something didn't work out, a setback, and what you learned from it, and maybe maybe how you built a, a context experience out of that? It's always a tough question. We always like to think about our successes more than our failures. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one, and I'd call it a personal failure more than an organizational one because I didn't do what I needed to do at the particular time. I was a new leader, and I was sitting in a quality meeting, and we were looking at the frequency with which we were successful at doing screening for breast cancer mammograms. At the time, we were probably number one in the nation, so it was not that it was bad quality, and I'll say our number was 80% of the appropriate women were screened, and the person stepping forward recommended we move to 82%. So many of the people in the room who would then be accountable for this thought that it was not, not only was it not possible, we should actually lower it down to 78%. And they had lots of different reasons, every one of which was true. Following up of potentially abnormal studies is more important than doing new diagnostic screening. The problem is that it's tough to get women to come on in, and it's not a question of not being able to offer the care. Everyone had the reasons, and instead of the meeting ending with what should have happened, and 82% people adopted the 78%. I think the biggest learning that I have is that there's always a good reason to not do the right thing when it comes to healthcare, and that what leaders have to do is to always do the right thing, to make sure that they implement the changes that are gonna save lives, that are gonna improve health, and to figure out how to make it happen. I often te I teach, you say, in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I tell people, that leaders make things happen that otherwise wouldn't. Administrators make the things happen that should happen all the time. Yeah. Passing regula regulatory agencies and submitting data to the states. But leaders have to make things happen that otherwise wouldn't and do so in healthcare on behalf of their patients. That is the 5,000-year-old legacy of being a medical professional. What a great example and, and a great distinction between an administrator and a leader and something for everybody listening today to, to consider, where do you fall in this? And is that where you want to be? Because is, is that what's going to get you the outcomes that you're looking for? Robert, what, what about, uh, I mean, you've, you've had such a, such a tremendous amount of experience, and I'd love to hear from you what you believe, what your number one or number two most proud leadership experience in healthcare has been to date. Let me give you two, if that's okay. That's perfect. The first one is the approach we took to hospital utilization. As you know, hospital utilization is the highest component of the cost of healthcare, about 30% in the United States today. Mm -hmm. It's also rising actually very rapidly. And the approach we took to hospital utilization had two parts to it. Number one, how could we prevent disease in the first place? Do the things that are necessary to control blood pressure to reduce strokes, blood lipids to control heart attacks, do the things around blood pressure specific to the kidneys, do all the things that we could do to reduce the incidence of disease. And number two, to move from a five-day hospital to a seven-day hospital. And every hospital is seven days for emergencies. But if you're admitted on Friday night to the typical hospital in the United States today with the same problem as on Tuesday night, mm -hmm. you'll spend an extra day exposed to possible infection, delaying care, delaying treatment, doesn't make any sense. It's just the way that we do business today. And by taking both approaches, higher quality 
and more rapid care to patients, we lowered the hospital utilization to half of the national average. For patients in Medicare, as you know, it's about 1,400 days per thousand Medicare participants. We got it down to under 700. Through quality and better care, the idea that somehow that we need to ration care is foolish when we have so many opportunities to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the care we provide. The other thing, and I worked with another leader named Dr. Sharon Levine on this, was we wanted to make certain that our patients could always be trustful in the care we provided. And when we looked at the negative impact of some of the drug companies, the drug reps, the drug programs, the payments to physicians, we said, enough. This was a decade ago. And we said, to make it very clear, physicians could take nothing, not a coffee cup, not a pen, nothing from a drug or device company. At the time, we thought that this would be really problematic. We had 6,000 physicians, now we have 10,000, but 6,000 at the time, only two left. Everyone else stayed. And what we were able to do based upon the savings that we achieved by making certain that people did not prescribe simply the drugs that were being hyped by drug companies because they had the greatest profit and the highest cost, or buying machinery that would add almost nothing and might have negative consequence for patients, we were able to make many times that investment in excellent physician education. The idea that says if we didn't have the drug company money and the vice company money, we could not train people, educate people, do all the things that are necessary is just short-sighted. We say invest the savings that we would have by not doing the wrong things on behalf of patients. We'd have more than enough money to be able to fund the positive educational and quality improvements that are needed. Two great examples. And the last example you provided, Robert, fascinating. You know, I feel like a lot of times when you're at the helm and you're, you've got a decision to make, it's critical to not see things worse than they are. I mean, you said out of 6,000 physicians, two left. What did you think was going to happen compared to what happened? hundreds would bail. You know, <laughs> right? Everyone talks about, well, this money is so essential and it's so positive. And we heard all those stories. We just couldn't find any data around that. But yeah. if they were all true, then people would go someplace else where they could maintain the payments. But I think they knew that what they were doing wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't right to take money. And let's be very honest about it. When drug companies say, we want you on an advisory board, we pay a lot of money because you're so smart. No, they want you on there because you prescribe a lot of it or we think you'll prescribe more of it. Right. So that opportunity to look in the mirror and face reality, I think is what that process did. And 10 years later, it's still the gold standard across the United States. Yeah, now it's the, it is the gold standard when you take a look at practices uh, held accountable by, you know, the Department of Justice for both pharma and device. I mean, it is the standard. So very interesting to learn that sort of you guys are the ones to to spearhead that. Much kudos. And, and again, you know, about walking the walk, you talk about administrators make things happen. Leaders make the difficult things happen. What a great example of that. And then I do want to spend a little bit of uh, uh, time, a couple minutes on on the hospital utilization piece. Tremendous work there as well. I mean, going from 1,400 days to 700 days per 1,000 patients, unbelievable work. What would you say the most difficult thing in achieving that was? 
The most difficult thing was going from the five-day to the seven-day hospital because it would mean that people would have to practice differently. And when mm. I say a seven-day hospital, it doesn't mean you do the same thing you do today, Monday to Friday, all seven days of the week, because there are no more patients to take care of. It means you have to shift some of the care you provide during the week, the elective care, the routine mm -hmm. care, onto the weekend so that your team is already in place and adding on a patient who's not emergent. We always do the emergent things on the weekends. Who's yeah. urgent? Who can wait till Monday? But it'd be better to do it today, at least more satisfying. Deal with the anxiety the patient's going to have, whether it's an interventional radiology procedure or an OR procedure or a colonoscopy in the suite. To have a team of people available now allows you to efficiently, with minimal added cost, add on that other patient. But of mm. course, we all like our weekends. Yeah. And the idea was terrifying. And it took a lot of conversation, a lot of scheduling, a lot of uh, what I call the A to G. That's the mnemonic that I use to talk about how you make leadership change happen. Had to do that in order to quell the fears that were there. Now that it's in place, it's just the way we do business. In fact, this may not even be that bad. You maybe have an extra day on Saturday. You like to ski. You can ski when the slopes are empty. You want to visit your child at school and see how they're doing. You can do that on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Change is just difficult. And what we know psychologically is that short-term loss is overfeared and the long-term benefits are underappreciated. Love that. And you mentioned A to G. What do you mean? So it's actually a model that I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business in the process of writing a chapter for a book on it. Okay. It looks at the question, how do leaders make difficult changes happen? Or as we said earlier, how do leaders make things happen that otherwise wouldn't? And I use the mnemonic A to G because it's easy to remember, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah. But it includes all of the steps that I believe leaders need to do to get people comfortable with the change process. And you have to start with the first question, which is why do people not want to change? And it's not that they don't want to change. Every physician, every nurse is very dedicated to their patients. But sometimes these ideas generate fear. They generate the fear that it's just a bad idea, it's gonna harm patients. They generate the fear that too much is gonna get asked of me. Generate the fear that people will laugh at me because I'm gonna go along and they won't. People will fear, I can't trust the leaders. If you start looking at all the fears, you need a plan to address them. And I don't mean in any way to deceive them, manipulate them. You can't do that in healthcare. Used car salesmen can do it. They only see you once in their life. Leaders right. in healthcare see people every single day throughout their career. What they have to do is be able to help people get over the short-term problem to the better long-term solution. I think about that as in chemistry, the activation energy. You gotta get over that hump to get to the other side. So the A is aspirational vision, a combination of something that's very inspiring, but also realistic. Uh, I think about Martin Luther King, who talked in his I Have a Dream speech. He said, get rid of all negative uh, racial thoughts. That would be impossible. He said, I dream that on the hills of Tennessee, there'll be the former slave owners and the, and the children of former slaves dancing together. Go to a soccer field in the United States today, you'll see that. It was difficult, but it was there. And you've got to win the hearts of people, I think, before you can deal with their mind. The B is the behaviors. What are the specific things you're going to have to do? You know, people are afraid you're going to ask them on that seven-day hospital to be there 30 days a month. They'll give up all the weekends, never see their kids. No, no, no. 
Here's exactly what we need one day a month. That starts to become doable. The C is the context. They want to understand why are we doing this? Physicians are very, very smart people. They intellectually want to know exactly what's going on. The C, the context does that. D is the data. How are we going to know what's going on? How are we going to evaluate this? And one of the warnings I give to leaders is if you're going to distribute data, you better know what you're going to do if your data doesn't show the change you want, because then all you'll be telling people is it doesn't really matter that we did this. If it turned out that nothing changes around patient length of stay or utilization, if we aren't able to lower the infection rate or do something positive for patients, then we better have a backup plan to make that happen. E is the engagement of the leader. Nothing happens unless people trust an individual. It's why I often speak about physician leadership. It's not that I undervalue nurses or technicians or hospital administrators or anyone else. But my experience has been that doctors will follow colleagues whom they respect and know, and they have to trust them. And trust is often built up through clinical practice, but then it has to be built up by one-on-one -on -one engagement. You can't send out emails. You can't have these, these big, broad meetings. You got to sit down with people and deal with their fears and help them understand why, in the end, patients are going to benefit as a consequence of what you're doing. The F is for the faculty. No one does this alone. You've got to have other people working with you. Some of them are going to be analytic people. Some of them are going to be other clinicians helping to lead the effort. And then finally, G is the governance. I break governance into three parts. There's the formal structure. Most leaders have a board they have to report to or someone else they have to get the approval. That's important, but it's not the most important. The second is the informal. Who are the real leaders in your facility? Who are the clinicians that everyone relies on for the toughest of patients? Because if they don't think it's a good idea, no one's going to go along with that. So you better make sure that you engage them before you begin the change process. And finally, incentives. I wrote a Forbes piece recently about how financial incentives always create change. Just almost never the change that you expect. And you may have seen the recent report from uh, Medicare that as a consequence of some of the approaches they used to diminish readmissions, the consequence was that patients were not getting it readmitted who needed to be. And as many as maybe 20,000 people could have died over the past few years from a program that was well-intended, but simply financial incentives are not how you make change happen. It's the full A to G model that makes it a reality. Love that. Love the model. And I'm glad I asked. At first, I thought you said Z. I'm like, wait a minute, G. <laughs> <laughs> so glad you asked. What a great playbook that any leader could take a look at to inspire change in a way that is acceptable, but also exciting. So appreciate you walking us through that, Robert. How about today? I mean, you, you do a lot of things. What are you most excited about today? What I'm most excited about today is that I think that our country is on the verge of making the shift that needs to happen for us to move American healthcare from the 20th into the 21st century. I write about in Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare while we're usually wrong, four pillars that I believe the road to the future need to be built. And I think we're moving towards those. The first one is integration both horizontally within departments and vertically between departments. When you're horizontally integrated, as you can have people in the same department working collaboratively, cooperatively, you can have greater specialization. You can come up with ways together to be able to be more efficient and effective than any one person alone. 
and vertically between primary care and specialty care. The opportunity to be able to take care of the patient's problem sooner, even when the patient's in the primary care physicians. A great example of that to me is that we used digital photography to be able for patients seeing a primary care physician who had a rash that that individual, that physician wanted assistance for, to use a digital picture to have it looked at by a dermatologist. And I joke that in the community, it's about six weeks often to see a dermatologist. We did it in six minutes before the patient left the room. They had a diagnosis and a treatment plan put in place by the dermatologist. Now, sometimes they can't resolve it, but it works in that particular way. Number two, capitation. I think, you know, we talk a lot about moving for volume to, to value. In the rest of our lives, we never imagine that we would bring a contractor in to work on our house and just simply pay them time and materials. And yet that's what we do in so much of American healthcare today. It doesn't matter whether the intervention makes a positive improvement, we simply pay for it. And we know from the New England Journal of Medicine is that 30% of what physicians do has been shown to not add any value, whether you're looking at arthroscopy with cartilage trimming against physical therapy alone, single vessel surgery, uh, single vessel angiography, and angioplasty for patients with stable heart disease. A lot of the back surgery we, we do, we know this, the data has shown it, and yet we continue to do that as soon as you move to a capitated arrangement, it changes. Technology, video, artificial intelligence, data analytics. A great example to me of the potential of all of this is video in the ED. We had a stroke-trained neurologist, still have a stroke-trained neurologist, who actually looks at the 20 EDs in Northern California. And when anyone comes in who may be having stroke symptoms, that physician takes over the care. What's the difference? Door-to-needle time drops to under 30 minutes rather than an hour elsewhere, saving lives, saving brain function. And then finally, the fourth pillar is simply leadership, that ability to take what today is a truly fragmented, unled system and put in place the kind of operational improvements through integration, the opportunities through prevention, avoidance of medical error relative to capitated payments, the opportunity to use technology to put it in place, and to create a true integrated care delivery system that is what is necessary for the 21st century. You know, last century, Saul, we had acute disease. We didn't have very many treatments available. The system we had worked. Today, it can't when the average person over the age of 65 has at least two chronic diseases, sees multiple physicians, is on numerous medications, that kind of system creates risk for patients unless that care is fully integrated, unless it has the technological support behind it, and unless everyone is organized in ways to avoid complications, to prevent disease. We can do those things today, they excite me, but we still have to make that happen as the norm across all of the United States. Outstanding. Some great pillars to think about. I'm, I'm definitely going to take some uh, a little journaling session after today, Robert, <laughs> our time together. And folks, I encourage you to do the same. Think about these topics. But also, uh, I invite you to go to Dr. Robert Pearl's website. It's robertpearlmd.com. There, you'll be able to see all the things that he's done, including his Forbes blog, his podcast, links to his book. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and, and I definitely encourage everybody listening to dive in and learn some more, robertpearlmd.com. 
definitely take a dive in and learn some more. Robert, getting close to the end of our time together here, really have enjoyed this. Uh, this part of the podcast is a lightning round. So I've got a couple questions for you that you'll answer with brief responses, and then we'll, we'll finish it up with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Ready. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? The best way to improve healthcare outcomes is through the four pillars. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Relying on financial incentives to drive change and improve performance. How do you stay relevant despite constant change? Go to robertperlmd.com and see all the articles that are there. <laughs> what I personally do is I spend a lot of my time looking at the literature, looking at what's being written and published and learning from others. Love it. What's one area of focus that drives everything in your work? The patient. Higher quality, care that's more rapid and convenient at lower cost. It's got to be affordable. It's got to be high quality. We can do better. We should do better. What's your number one health habit? I run uh, about 30 to 35 miles a week. Nice. And what is your number one success habit? I take the time to think about the past, the present, and the future, to learn from the past, to enjoy the present, and plan for the future. Love it. And uh, what book would you recommend to the listeners? I'd recommend two books. One book is The Leadership Challenge by Posner and Kuzis. It's the first book actually I read on leadership. It's still, I think, possibly the best single book that's out there right now, even though it's probably on their umpteenth edition. And then another book that I find very useful to understand healthcare in specific, but business in general, are the three disciplines of market leaders, the notion of operational excellence, a notion of customer intimacy, and the idea of product differentiation. And what I would tell the listeners who do read the book is that although in the first edition, the writers of that talked about how you can only be great in one, over time they've evolved. And I believe that not only can you be good in two, actually need to be extremely good in all three. You know, I saw a sign saw on the wall of a health organization, big letters at the top, it said quality, service, and cost. Mm -hmm. And then down below it said, pick any two. We can't pick any two anymore, Saul. We've got to do all three. Strong message there, Robert. And I totally agree with you. The choosing is, is gone. We have to do all of them. Listeners, some great books here provided by Robert, including his own. But uh, for all of these uh, uh, resources, go to outcomesrocket.health. In the search bar, type in Robert Pearl, and you'll find this entire podcast transcript links, as well as just the, the shorthand uh, show notes for you, outcomesrocket.health, type in Robert Pearl, but also visit robertpearlmd.com to dive into some of uh, Robert's thoughts. It's definitely a site that you'll enjoy spending time on. Robert, before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought with the listeners and then the best place where they could continue following your work. The thought I'd give to the listeners is when I wrote Mistreated, I wrote it for the patient in all of us. And that's how I view it. We can't think of ourselves simply as the providers of care or the insurers of care. We're actually all ultimately the receivers of that care. And I do believe that together, all of us can once again make American healthcare great. That's the underlying theme of the podcast, the Fixing Healthcare podcast that I uh, do. I'd encourage listeners to listen in to the one that I just completed 
with Dr. Devi Shetty, the heart surgeon from India, Mother Teresa's personal physician, and the founder of a hospital on the Grand Cayman Islands, one hour from Miami Beach. That's a large hospital on a small island that's not aiming only to take care of the local people who are there. And anyone who wants to communicate with me, they can reach me through LinkedIn. Outstanding, Robert. This has been such a, a tremendous podcast. Really appreciate your insights, your passion, your stories. I know that the listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. So a big thank you to you. Thank you to Saul. It's been fun. And keep up your great work. I think through your podcast, together all of us can change American healthcare for the better. And I really support all the things that you're trying to do to educate people and to drive change in American healthcare today. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 